This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hello, welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me, Robert Peston. So we are going to focus this episode on answering your questions because we've got loads of them, haven't we? And I think sometimes we get to the end of a programme planning to answer some questions and we've run out of time. So not today. And the focus is on you. Uh, just to remind you as well, it's restismoney at gmail.com if you want to send them in. So I have one for you, first of all, Robert, that I'll kick off with, which is about shares. Obviously, our last episode was uh, very much looking at how it works with the stock market and shares. But Ollie Page has got a very specific one about the shares he has. He says, I own shares in different companies. Sometimes I sell them. Who am I selling them to? Are the company in which I own the shares buying them back? And when I buy shares, who am I buying them from? Is there a time where there are no shares left to buy? Who gets the money that I'm spending on shares? And then he goes on to say, if this is the stupidest question you've ever heard, then I apologise. To soften the blow, Robert, I love the books. I'm halfway through The Crash as we speak. Have you Uh, read The Crash yet? No, I haven't. (laughs) Oh, for goodness <laughs> sakes, Steph. Anyway. Know, by the way, Ollie, this is not a stupid question. I, I love it when people ask the, you know, the the absolute grassroots questions because so many people assume knowledge, don't they? And this is the stuff we should be talking about. So go on, Robert, start us off. And you owe me 20 quid because Ollie's given you a plug for your book. Well, actually, I owe Ollie 20 <laughs> quid, particularly since he said he loved my books. Uh, anyway, crash available. Only halfway through, though, isn't he? Um, He's fallen asleep midway through. <sighs> Okay. <laughs> right, back to the question. Ollie's question. Shares. What's going on with them? Who's buying them? Who owns them? Yeah, so what happens is, let's say that you either speak to a broker or actually, I think mostly these days we all do it electronically. You press the sell button. You sell a thousand shares in McGovern Inc. Um, you'd um, never sell. You'd be buying them. <laughs> 
Um, at that point, they are picked up by effectively a market maker. It might be an electronic market maker, and then just parcelled out at the prevailing market price, the price that you are seeing on your screen, to a purchaser. Sometimes the shares will sit in that market-making pot for a period until the market clears. And the whole point of a stock exchange is whether the market maker is electronic or a real human being, there are people in the center who match the buyers with the sellers. And they do have to take a minuscule amount of risk because, you know, there are circumstances in which a market maker might buy a very big parcel of shares at a particular price. And then within a millisecond, that price collapses, let's say. And at that point, you know, they would be potentially sitting on a huge loss. Now, in practice, the market makers are unbelievably sophisticated in making sure that those risks are protected or hedged in the phrase. And so it is very unusual for a, not it's not impossible when you get massive market movements market makers can be in real trouble but it's very unusual for a market maker to get into that kind of difficulty these days because of the sophisticated way they manage the risk around a whole about yeah. the many many shares and other securities that they are holding at the other end of the the scale as well because I do quite a bit of this with my investing is you can buy equity get shares in startups through them using sites to essentially kind of equity crowdfund, can't you? So I've done this with a couple of companies now where I've thought, oh, I'll, you know, put a couple of hundred quid into that. That looks decent. And you get, you know, a proportion of the company. And then you can sell those shares on the secondary market where you are actually then buying them from other share, other people who've also, you know, done this equity crowdfunding as well. So there's, there's like different levels of this. And I find that that is quite a good way of kind of dipping your toe into uh, buying shares in companies. They're not listed. They're doing this kind of crowd funding equity ownership and there's quite a few kind of tax incentives and things around that. The important point here though, which I think we should relate back to the original question, when you're doing that kind of share investment, you are taking a much bigger risk because yeah. you know we've talked about, I've just been talking about very liquid markets, essentially stock exchange trading. The kind of shares you're buying, actually in your case, you know, there is a genuine risk that you will end up with shares that nobody wants to buy. Yes. In that case, the absence of a named individual or institution who wants to buy the shares is a problem, right? If you are buying shares on a stock exchange, you can almost always... 99.99999% of the time, be confident you will be able to sell those shares because the whole point of the stock exchange is to create that liquid market, which means, except in very exceptional circumstances, which does occasionally happen, sometimes stock exchanges have huge tech problems and they shut down. And for that period, you can't sell the shares, but it's unusual, mm. right? So you have to make a distinction in your own mind between what you might call a liquid investments on stock exchanges, which you could almost always buy and sell willy-nilly. Yeah. and your kind of investment, which is simply about matching an investor yeah. with somebody who needs the money. And in those circumstances, there is no guarantee that the person who buys those shares will ever be able to sell them again. Correct. And a few have gone by the wayside <laughs> I've seen so far, but some of them are doing well. Actually, there was a time years ago 
when it was possible, even with shares listed on the stock exchange, to know that a particular huge investor had dumped that stock. And you could sort of know that if you were buying it, where it came from. And indeed, there were also specialist brokers whose whole job was to take a, you know, a big parcel of shares and then sell it to another investor. And that stuff would become known. But mostly if you're a small investor, you know, it's a bit like you go to a street market, you have no idea who grew the tomatoes you're buying. And it's broadly the, the same principle. What we know is that there are some shares that, you know, somebody wants to make available, but you will never know who those people are. Oh. I used to love it when, for TV purposes, we used to go to like a trading floor and you get all the people like, on the phone suddenly standing up, bye, bye, sell, sell. They always had Cockney accents. I don't know why. Because actually a lot of them did, I mean, in the in London, a lot of them did work in the East End and they grew up yeah. in the East End and there was a tradition of, you know, East Enders. Many of them would le- would have left school at 16 actually going to work in the, yeah. the Stock Exchange. It was an extraordinary hierarchy. You would get the sort of really posh, old Etonians who were the stockbrokers at firms with names like Casanova and Dazoot, and they were all very posh yeah. and often independently wealthy. There was this phrase which I always thought of as being slightly denigratory of, you know, the jobbers were the so-called Barrow Boys from the East End. It's not a phrase I ever really liked, but they were genuinely, you know, my... Um, Actually, he wasn't an uncle. I mentioned in my last podcast, I've been doing my family history recently. Somebody who was sort of an uncle in my family <laughs> was a very successful stock jobber, you know, a, a few decades ago, a lovely man called Barry Pearl. And he had a, uh, a lovely Cockney accent. But in the old days, it was all much more personal. These days, it is almost all of it is uh, electronic. And as you know, you know, there are all sorts of extraordinary uh, now digital programs, and indeed many of them now using AI, you know, which are scraping internets all over the world just to look for price differentials to take advantage of. And this is all completely now automated, or at least some sections of it are now almost completely automated. There are a couple of other points to Ollie's question, which I think are worth focusing on. He says, are the company in which I own the shares buying them back? Well, that's a separate thing, Mm. right? A company issues shares. When it initially issues a share, that's called a primary sale, right? So when a company creates shares for sale to the public, the money that it raises goes into that company's coffers, right? Now, once they've been sold then the market is not a primary market, it's a secondary market. And the buyers and sellers are, they might be institutional investors or they might be people. Um, But at that point, the money simply changes hands between those investors. However, some companies, and we've seen this, for example, just this week with Barclays, Right, Barclays has announced that it's going to be buying back billions of pounds of its own shares. So that is the reverse of a primary sale. It is basically handing out its money to investors to buy back its own shares. Why does it do that? It does that. I happen to think that when companies do this, it shows the extent to which it doesn't have confidence in its own prospects. Because the reason it's doing that is it thinks it's driving the share price up. But think about it for a second. If you are using company money to buy your own shares, you are making the decision 
that you cannot find a better use for your own money. In other words, you are basically saying it's better value to buy my shares back than to invest in growing my business. And I always personally take the view that shows that a company has run out of imagination and interesting ways to expand their business. I think it's a, I think it's depressing when companies buy back their so own shares. So are you predicting the death of Barclays? I am not predicting <laughs> the death of Barclays. But unfortunately, well, Barclays is just one of a whole number of companies that basically try and get their share price up by buying their shares back. I personally think that that yeah. shows in general a lack of imagination and creativity on the part of those companies. Mm, yeah. Um, it actually she leads neatly on to another question we've been asked about investment. Do you want to tell us what this one is from Tanya? So this is about women in business. And it begins, listening to Steph's adventures as an investor in local businesses, I wonder if there's a book about investing for women by a successful woman investor. She'd like to read it. And she's got a question for me, which maybe you can ask me later yeah, if we've got I'm time for it. Yeah, I'm going to ask you this one. It's a, <laughs> yeah, Tanya sent in great questions, actually. So just in terms of books and things, you might think, why do there need to be gender-specific books on investing? Because, you know, it's the same for everyone, surely. But actually, the, the statistics show that there are far fewer women investing than there are men. Like, I think there was there was some research done by Bruin Dolphin on this, um, obviously the wealth management firm. And they said that, while while women are excellent savers, they were far less active than men when Why it came that? to making investments. I think it's just the the risk element of it. And, you know, the historical kind of gender division in a relationship where the women would be the ones who'd look after the money the blokes had earned that week and, you know, divvied the money out from a budgetary point of view, but not necessarily being the ones who'd taken the risks with it. Can I ask you a question? Which yeah. is, I mean, you are entrepreneurial, you like creating businesses. I mean, when you think about your own yeah. risk appetite and your own desire to, you know, slime, there we go. Yeah. We've mentioned <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your, your great business at the moment. Well, as you say, among others, um, when you think about why you do it and maybe some other people you grew up with didn't do it, what's the difference? Yeah. It's even my career in business journalism, you know, to begin with, I was one of very few women who was in the industry talking about business on the telly and finance. And I remember everyone saying to me, oh my God, why did you pick that topic? It's so hard. And, I, and I've always been like, it isn't when you understand the basics. And I think, you know, it, co it comes back to my point about financial literacy in schools and things. I don't think we teach people enough about the really interesting stuff about money in terms of how you make money and how you can spend it and how you can grow money and, and that type of thing. So I think from my point of view, I am someone who gets the thrill from making money. You know, like I grew up in borough where our first question to anyone who came in to talk about careers was how much money are you on because that was an incentive for us and I've always been of that view of you know a wheeler dealer element to me at school I used to sell take that stickers that I managed to get from my mum my mum worked in a hospital so the hospital shop had this rare variety of take that stickers I'd be the one who go and bulk buy them and then sell them for more money at school so I've always been like of that mindset of how do we make money and what do you think women are more risk averse or is it that they just actually calculate risks in a yeah. more methodical and sensible way? I mean, the reason I ask this question is you'll remember 
that one of the theories about why all those bankers blew up the economy in 2007-8 with those ridiculously mm. reckless loans was the testosterone-fueled male culture of the trading floors. And do you remember, I think at the time, you and I were talking about if there'd been more women yeah. traders and more women bankers, maybe the risks would have been more measured and more controlled and we wouldn't have had that yeah. catastrophe. So it seems to me that You've got to be careful when saying, you know, men have a greater appetite for risk. It might just be that men have a greater appetite for stupid gambling. Yeah, well, no, but I think this is totally true because, you know, from all the time, years I've spent talking to women in business and, you know, talking about those differences. There's this great example that was given to me in the banking sector about if um, a, a job spec comes out, a job description that you're thinking about applying for, if a man looks at it, and I know these are sweeping generalisations, it's not applicable to everyone, but if a man looks at it and can do one third of the requirements on it, he will apply for the job. If a woman looks at it and can do two thirds of it, which means a third she's not sure about, she won't apply for it. And, you know, there's this this whole mindset that- around, I think you're right, I think women historically don't want to take risks as much and that might again play back to often they're the ones who are running the houses and keeping everything steady at home and maybe that's part of it women are you know I think we're just more sensible (laughs) as well and and this again coming back to this research about investment it was saying that women are much more likely to leave you know money and savings accounts reducing that kind of likelihood of of long-term returns because you know they're more bothered about it being safe and steady and that, that that's i do think we need a, a kind of shake up on things like that that's the whole point about businesses in general isn't it that gender diversity if we had more diversity at the top it would mean that the decisions would probably be different and more often than not be safer but with risk, the whole point of risk is you can make big gains, can't you? As well as, you know, big losses. There's a chance for you to to make more. But do you think it's changing? I mean, you know, obviously in earlier generations, it was boys who were taught that they could do anything. Yeah. But, you know, it was boys' confidence that was, you know, massively bigged up. Surely now, most parents would say to their kids, whatever gender, you know, you can do whatever you want. So are we seeing more women wanting to become entrepreneurs, wanting to become business leaders? So this is really interesting because obviously I've got a daughter Mm. who's four and she came back from nursery the other day and was chatting away to me. And obviously she's been brought up by two women Mm. as well, two strong, you know, independent, Successful. successful women. And she said to me, she was talking about jobs. They were doing career stuff at school. And she was saying, oh, you know, I was like, what do you want to go in? Ask, you've got to go in dressed in the outfit of the career you want to do. And she was talking about, you know, vets or whatever and Mm. different Mm. things she wanted to do. And I was like, yeah. And then I said, about one of the jobs, I said to me like, oh, do you not want to do that? Do you not want to be a builder? And she went, no, that's what the boys do. And I was like, (gasps) it literally raised every bit of anger. And I was like, who has told you that? And um, I don't know where it had come from because then the nursery were like, no, 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 We obviously we say you can be whatever you want to be, but just, I don't know why, but she just, it can't be innate. Surely it's not innate. It must have just come from, come from something she'd seen that made her think that. The other thing that made me laugh that she said as well is we were talking about, I said something about mucky beer because, you know, to a kid you always say, oh, you know, that's, don't be drinking any the mucky beer. And she was like, no, 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 boys drink beer, girls drink wine. And I was like, 
like, what? <laughs> what is going on? You're four. Who's telling you this shit? It's terrifying, isn't it? So uh, uh, yeah, coming back to what, what we're talking about, has it changed? I really hope it has, but... You know, we keep talking about AI, yeah. right? All the bleeding, you know, AI leaders, guru- they're all men. Yeah. It's ridiculous. What's going on? I know, I know. But surely, I, I do think things are changing. You know, like obviously I did engineering for a long time, which was very male dominated. And there are some amazing women who've come through in the engineering sector now. And I've, I meet them at quite a lot of events. And I do think it's coming through, but it's just so slow. It's so slow. Um, but shall I answer Tanya's question about books though? Because um, you, you haven't told <laughs> we've, we've, we've We've danced around the fundamental issue. Yes. But. So there are some great books out there. Now, it depends at what level you are, at the ones I'd recommend. So there's, if you really want the basics of where to start and understand in financial terms, there's one called Girls Just Want to Have Funds. And that is one that's come about from these three brilliant female entrepreneurs who are, you know, doing lots of investments and things. And they've written this great book, which breaks it all down. I would say that is the the basics. Then if you, if you want to go to the next level of knowing exactly how to do the investments, you've got a book called Girls That Invest by Simran Carr. Um, and that comes from a podcast of the same name. And again, all those women who've written these books, they also do lots of podcasts and do lots of um, workshops and things like that, which are, are great. So you should have a look at those but that comes back to that point about girls but women are allowed to call themselves girls, girls but, but, but men are not rightly, allowed to <laughs> quite rightly men are not yeah. but I have to say you know it's definitely my book title of the day girls just want to have fun I know it's brilliant it's isn't it so, <laughs> I, I have a nasty feeling some publisher came up with the title and then thought we've got to just get a book written now <laughs> yeah can I ask you the question that Tanya also asked in addition which is for you so this is you know your head's going to grow just from this thanks Tanya a question for Robert he's clearly super prolific in all sorts of fields including book writing how does he do it very little sleep no social life. Like, how does he get so much done? I would love to know. Uh, I think it's called focus, which some people would probably say is a manifestation of being somewhere along the autistic spectrum. And perhaps we should have a serious conversation about this on another occasion. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. But this hyper-focus um, you've got, you've talked to me about this. It all made sense, actually, when you described that to me. Because having worked with you, you know, I remember when we were first worked together at the BBC and I think we were a bit of an unusual pairing to be put together, weren't we? And I think there was a view that me as a northerner would be able to somehow control you. Humanise me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know if it worked, but we be- obviously became great friends. And working together, I was always amazed at how you could, you know, it would be 11 o'clock at night and you would ring me with information of some scoop you'd just got. And then in the next moment, you'd be talking about something else, which obviously made you brilliant at your job. But does it never do your head in that you can't switch your your brain off? Well, no, because the, the, I suppose the point is this, and I think professionally this has been quite helpful. I, I, I have to say in some ways, I think I'm, why well, I'm trying to change in some ways and integrate the different bits of my life rather better emotionally and intellectually. But the thing that I was historically very good at was w- what people would call compartmentalizing, which is, you know, I'd have this set of issues in this bit of my brain and another bit of issues, mm-hmm. sort, sort of issues and another bit. And I, and I was just quite good at switching compartments. I think truthfully, 
although that might be quite successful in a professional sense, it can drive the people who love you up the wall mm. because, you know, sometimes they don't want you in your work compartment. They want you in a different compartment. And, you know, we can we can talk about my psychotherapy you, on another occasion. But, but I think I think there are goods and bad. There's, there's, there's a good and bad about being I, able to focus in that way. I wasn't there that myth as well about um, your late wife, Sean, making you, was it bury your phone or put your, hide your phone or something when you went to Wales? Am I right in thinking this? You went on holiday and you had to basically hide your phone. Uh, yeah, I think she was slightly annoyed about the extent to which, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in the days of Blackberries, I was a little bit too addicted yes, to it. it. So, it so, yeah, no, but I think it's important. And actually, yeah. I, look, if you are good at compartmentalizing, then it does mean, I'm, look, I am good at switching. I can totally switch off from work, right? I can do that. But the truth is, you know, as human beings, you, you also have to be able at times to be in all zones at the same time rather than in just one zone. And sometimes I'm too much in one zone, mm. I think is, is what I would say. Yeah. Should we move to another zone now and answer another question, which we will come to after this break? Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply This is a great one from Simon here, Simon Bruman. So he was having a debate about inflation with his son. And the basic question, which his son was suggesting, is that inflation feeds on the poor, which is what Simon agrees with. But he added that inflation can be good because you can see a difference in living standards, etc. since the 1800s. So the question is, is inflation always bad or is it partly a natural occurrence as a society develops? It's a really good question, this, isn't it? Because inflation is always kind of demonised, but actually it's useful as well because you, as long as it's not too high, inflation, you know, one level is a good thing. Yes. So look, let's be absolutely clear. Deflation is a very, very, very bad thing, right? So that is prices falling, not just as a sort of one-off. And at the moment, there are lots of people who, who want food prices to fall, given the 25, 30% rises we've seen. But if prices across the economy are consistently falling then that's terrible for the economy because people defer their purchases, right? If you are somebody thinking about buying a car and you are confident because of deflation, it's going to be cheaper in three months, you won't buy a car. 
And that means that a manufacturer won't sell a car. And that means that, you know, there's less money coming into that business and they may sack people and they'll certainly invest less. And if that happens across the economy, as I say, generalized deflation is regarded rightly as terrible because people stop spending now and they stop investing now because they think things are going to get cheaper. So a small level of inflation, it's why central banks target inflation of 2% because um, that's a sort of cushion. It's a useful cushion between 0 and 2. There's no exact science about generating the inflation you want, as we've seen, because central banks have been so rubbish at getting inflation down. But if you're going to have a target, you want to target a level that's a bit more than naught to reduce the risk of actual deflation, right? But I think Simon is asking another question, which is, are there times when quite high inflation is good for economies, right? Now, this is a very controversial question. Right. Let's say, and this is undoubtedly the case when it comes to quite a lot of governments around the world, and some would say this is true of our government, that debts are very high. So at the moment, you know, all the talk within the political establishment, whether you're a Labour or Tory at the moment, is that borrowing and debt in terms of the public sector are too high, heading for 100% of our um, uh, GDP, our national income. Historically, There have been people who would argue the way to deal with debts of that sort is to have a bout of inflation, yeah, in which not only the costs of government go up, but wages go up at a terrific knot across the economy. Because there's lots of benefits and things like that which are linked to inflation, aren't they? Like um, the trip a lot we often talk about. If inflation is associated with a boom in what wages people are earning, for example, right? Let's say you've got a debt on your house of a couple hundred thousand quid, right? Um, if your interest rate is fixed, yeah. right? But your wages are going up at, let's say, I don't know, 15% a year, right? Progressively, the affordability of that £200,000 debt goes up. It becomes much easier for you to pay the debt because your wages are going up. And if across the economy, right, wages are going up, profits are going up, taxes are going up, then actually, even for a government with an enormous amount of debts, they're getting more tax revenues in, right? And that makes their debt more affordable. So there are, there have historically been times where people have said, you know, inflation helps you to make your debts more affordable. Now, actually... I personally take the view that is really toxic and bad economics. And there's a lag as well. For all sorts of reasons. But, you you know, for every borrower, there is, of course, a lender, right? And if you are the lender, okay, at a time of high inflation, then, of course, you are being made poorer Mm. as a lender. And, of course... You know, you will then in those circumstances, you'll say, well, the risk of lending into that economy because of inflation is 
that much higher. And actually, you're then going to charge more for the risk of lending into that economy. So any new loans you make will be at a much higher interest rate. And then that's why inflation gets you into this vicious cycle of interest rates becoming progressively higher, along with inflation. And that is why significant levels of inflation are really bad over the long term. Yeah. So what so I think you know the basic you know answer to the question is a small basic level of inflation 2% yes. or so is definitely good for an economy. Yeah. Inflation of 10 20% is really bad for an economy because basically if you're an investor or a lender it is damaging you the risk for you of investing or lending goes up and you will therefore charge much more. And deflation yeah. is probably worse than anything. I feel like I've just had a TED Talk on inflation. I enjoyed that. <laughs> Thanks, Simon. Another question for you. This one is again comes back to AI, which we, we talk about in every episode yeah. now. Edward Kerwin says, which of your jobs in your whole career would you worry most about being taken by AI? I think mine would be a parent. I'd be really worried if my job as a parent got taken over by AI. Uh, but I'm not scared of AI. I think it's going to be prosperous. I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, doing all the menial tasks I don't want to do. But I guess the, the worry would be it taking away some of the creativity of my job and the storytelling that I like doing. You know, obviously it would be great if there was an AI robot who could have swept the floors in that B-Jam freezer I talked about in a, <laughs> uh, uh, in a previous. I don't think anybody's going to regret those sorts of jobs being replaced. And I think the, actually one of the things that's quite important to think about AI is if AI replaces the jobs that nobody in their right minds would want to do, that's a great thing. Yeah. As you say, it's when it replaces jobs that are creative and give people fulfilment. Yeah. That's where we got to worry. Yeah. There's one more question I want to squeeze in. And this is a yes or no answer. And this is from Rasco. Do you have a bigger studio than Alistair and Rory? We deserve a bigger studio. We do have one because they always do it remotely, don't they? In their little wherever they are. Yeah. Their and hotel you... rooms or, you know, Rory's always somewhere exotic, isn't he? Whereas well, we have this glamorous Spotify studio. Although, you know, some would say, and obviously we would never say this, because of the size of their egos, they deserve a bigger studio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. Thank you so much for all the questions. I mean, there's still more we could do and we will do over the next few episodes. And just a reminder again, it's restismoney at gmail.com or you can just search for us on our social media pages. But that's it from us. See you next week. 